writing a novel. I haven't written a play in years. Have you? No, I, I'm, I mostly write novels. And uh, um, I mean, po poetry was also my other thing I always did. But yeah, mostly, mostly right. fiction. Yeah. yeah. I mean, plays, it's like, what's the point? Well, you can't do them. Can't do them. You can't do them. That's the problem. And even if you can do them, it's like, for what? I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening. Quick housekeeping. The, uh, after, after a long dormant period, <laughs> uh, the Slee Rickets Twitter account sort of exists now. Uh, I, I only uh, set it up in order to park the name, but then somebody found it, so I had to make it a thing, and for a long time just posted what I have since been told were uh, really unhelpfully untagged posts simply to recent episodes. So now uh, I've, I've handed it off and two close friends of the podcast are managing the at Slee Ricketts account. So if you like the show you, and you just, you feel like you could do with a lot less me, then go check out at Slee Ricketts on Twitter and do all of the things to that account that will make my Confederates happy. I am told it's going better than it was <laughs> when when I was doing it or not doing it. I, I've been trying to think of a, a, a an apt superlative for my guest today. I was going to say she's one of the coolest people I've ever I've ever met, but really she's not cool at all. I mean, cool is really totally the wrong word. She's uh, very smart, very funny, and and impressive, really. Maybe that's him. Maybe she she may just be one of the most impressive people I've ever met in her peculiar way. My guest today is Kathleen Jones. She's a screenwriter living in New York, and she is also the host of the podcast "Writing My Writing Down." Also, really weird, uncool, but sort of interesting, strange, impressive podcast. If I can recommend just one episode to you to, to introduce you to it, it would be the one where she talks at length about her really intimate relationship with William Goldman, the legendary screenwriter of Marathon Man, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and The Princess Bride, among other things. So check that out. Uh, check Kathleen out and enjoy. The, I, don't, I, don't ever, I don't really want to give too much more away. Uh, so I, I hope you enjoyed this <laughs> meandering, but I think fun fruitful conversation with Kathleen Jones. The ethos or the agenda or like, I don't know, project of your podcast is like slightly different than any other one I've quite run into. How do you think about that? Like, what do you aim for when you do that? It's like an experiment and my thesis is I'm going to make my life as complicated and difficult and antithetical to writing as possible with a terminal illness and three high needs foster kids and like, see if I can still get writing done. 
like see if I can still write stuff. And like basically what I'm testing on myself is does my richer, fuller, more complicated life give me more writing or less? You know, like I could get rid of all the things that make my life complicated and just well, write all yeah. day, but but obviously I couldn't. I mean, I'm not gonna. Yeah, yeah. But that that's basically what I'm testing. And then it's like every episode is okay, basically a little snippet of like, here's what was going on in my life. I had a surgery. I received three kids in the mail. I <laughs> like whatever. <laughs> Yeah. And then I shouldn't talk about them like that, but it's like it really was that way. It was like they called us, and four hours later, there were three kids on the doorstep. Like that's well, I mean, how it, fast. It's so it's so abrupt and like maddening, like to have a child the way we did, just one at a time. Like so, having like multiple at once in the way you're describing is like that's that is truly uh, nuts, but but amazing. And it, I mean, it, you are of the people I know personally. Uh, you're you're one of the few I can imagine actually like vo- like well, volunteering for it and then actually doing it uh, as well. Yeah, we have successfully survived a year, wow. a year of it, and the kids have too, and our marriage also has. So That's, like, yeah, equally. I feel like yeah. yeah, we're like three for three. But I don't know. It's definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. But I don't know if you found this when you became a dad. It's like writing is less hard because it's like, well, no, my everything else is like the stakes are real in the rest yeah, of my yeah, life. Yeah, yeah. And the stakes are fake. If I like don't get my pages done, like this is supposed to be the fun thing. So like it's like the rest of my life is so hard and adult and like full of responsibilities. And I used to treat my writing that way. Like, oh, my writing is like this cranky child. I must diaper. But it's, yeah. but now it's like, well, if it's not joyful, like I don't have to do it or, or I do, but I still feel that urge to do it. But then it's like, okay, can I like grow up and stop punishing myself for thinking of writing as a punishment? And like, cause there's real things i don't know i mean this is something that has always kind of puzzled me about you because i like i met i met you at catholic university and you were probably like probably both the smartest and the most christian person i met there (laughs) but you see i mean i mean the christian like not not just in like a a quotation marks like you you seem to like genuinely be a pretty christian person person and you also seem like quite well adjusted particularly for like having having like dealt with some real shit in your life but you have had the most tortured relationship to your writing i can't fucking <laughs> understand it like i don't like i know tons of like, like alcoholic depressive suicidal poets who don't have nearly as difficult a relationship with their writing as you do and i don't i, I don't know yeah i don't know why i i don't know why either and it's like honestly I honestly, I go to therapy about it. I'm like, why do I hate my writing so much? Like, sorry, I don't mean I, to laugh at you. But, but no, I'm, but I like have three kids. Okay. And I'm like spending my therapy. Yes. He's like, okay, blah, 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 court, blah, 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 case planner. Okay. But like, why can't I, like, why don't I enjoy it? And then I'm like, oh, why would I do something I don't enjoy? I'm going to quit. And then I quit and I'm like even more depressed, but I like can't make myself right until I do make myself right. And then I'm like, oh, I like this. 
I don't know. I think when I, I became a Christian through writing, but sort of like in the Wait, process. Really? Yeah. I yeah. I sort that. of like wrote myself into it do as a teenager. I don't know. I mean, it's not like I would have been like, let me tell you my I know, origin story. Yeah. I don't, maybe I have a, a misremembering, but for some reason I thought, so your parents were not super religious. No, my oh. parents are Catholics, but they're like, uh, Christmas and Easter Catholics. Yeah, they're like ca- yeah. California Catholics. I, I don't know. I oh, mean, okay. That's yeah, God knows. I don't even. State, that's but... that's a whole other <laughs> brand. I, we never even got that far. And from, coming from Atlanta, it didn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're they're exotic. Catholic, but like they, you know, it wasn't. They did. I don't know. I mean, if that's their story to tell, but they didn't like make me do it. It's not important to them. They were like, find your own path in life. And then I left the faith for a long time as a, as a high schooler, but it was sort of like my relationship with God was sort of similar to my relationship with writing. And that I would be like, I, this is so much like, this is so overwhelming. Like, how could you possibly just be one person and come to a conclusion about like the entirety of the universe and who made it and why we're here. And like, this is too much work. I'm out. I'm just going to be a whatever. But then I would just be so drawn back to the person of Jesus and just like, well, who, who was he? It's like that CS Lewis question. Like he's either the son of God or a madman, but like, he's not in between. You know that quote I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 No, I I do remember. Yeah. Connor has a whole thing about uh, if the, if the I think she was talking about the transubstantiation specifically, but it's something like if 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 this isn't real, then it's then like it's a whole the whole thing's a crazy sideshow. Like yeah, you can't ease. There's no like moderate, easy listening Christianity, right? Yeah, yes. it's like the, it's like yes. the adrenaline needle in Pulp Fiction. Like you- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was it for me. I just I was like. At one point, it's like I just threw my hands up and I was like, I'm so drawn in that, like, if it's a sideshow, what am I going to do about it? And if it's not, then I'm in the right place. And that was sort of like the piece I came to was like, well, I'm in theater. So if this is all like a crazy farce, that's not like so far off from (laughs) theater anyway. Right. It brought me so much peace to just practice it, to just pray, believe in Jesus, read the Bible blah 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 that I just like went all in and that was when I was like 19 and then and then and when I was that young it was like you know my life expectancy was different and shorter because of you know I have cystic fibrosis which you know and then so I was like am I gonna die in 10 years like what's the point of life like what's the point of these next 10 years like, what's the point of going to grad school if I graduate when I'm 25 and I'm expected to die when I'm 32 or whatever? I was all right. dramatic about it. Sure. And so I kept writing about it. Like, what's the point of life? And it just felt like, well, if I'm going to die early, I would rather live believing in heaven because I think about my own death so much like it's so it was so present in my mind at the time that I was like whatever I need to believe in heaven like I need to survive this ordeal and heaven is an effective 
method. And so it's sort of like that, the piece I came to and I was writing and journaling my way through all of that. But then I became a Christian. I like wanted to be a really good one. And then I was like, well, my, my. <laughs> you didn't want to be my, a bad one. You didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't. Well, I didn't want to like half is this, ass Is this because you're like a, an overachiever? Is that what yeah, that is? Totally. 100%. Okay. <laughs> because I'm just like a rule follower overachiever. It's like, okay. I can't do anything small. It's like, okay, I want to become a mom. So I'm going to start with three foster children in the middle of a pandemic. Like that's yeah. an insane way to start a family, but yeah, yeah. that's how I did it. And then anyway, I felt like, well, my plays need to be Christian. Your play, your, it, pl- your plays. Yeah. Then I was like, well, my writing needs to be like leading people to Jesus. If I'm yeah. a Christian. Yeah. That was, that was and, one of my, one of the questions I wanted to ask you, cause I still don't understand what that means. I don't either. I don't either. And I think that's part of the like, well, if I'm a Christian, what kind of sin can I put on stage? What can I write? What am I supposed to expose sin? Or am I supposed to just write the human condition and blah, 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 whatever. I think in the end, it was like the darkness that exists in people that causes people to commit evil. I didn't want to write about it but I knew it existed and you kind of can't write good stuff without writing about it, but it just made me so uncomfortable. I don't know. Like the darkness in people scared me so much and I didn't want to go to that place in myself. And I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't really answer the question and I still can't and I still don't have any answers. And now it's like, like what, like what does, I used to think of like my writing as the gift that God gave me in this earth. And like, that was the, those were like the assignments I had to turn in to God, my third grade teacher. Right, it's like right, these right, little sure. plays that were like really good. Yeah. Like the, the parable like, of the talents, like you have to show your, 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 yeah. your investment. Yeah. Yeah. I have to show my work. And so as you can imagine, that's like not a very creative place to write from. It didn't really it's, produce it's limitations. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Similar. It's like, oh, I just want to write a good assignment where like, sure. you know, the good people win and we showed how virtue is like successful. Okay. I think, I, think there, I, think, I, I think there are also still plenty of like adult writers who, who do that same thing. They just like, you know, mutatis mutandis for like secularism or for like political correctness or for like, like there are plenty of people who have exactly that same MO. They just have a slightly different set of, they have a different third grade teacher they're writing for. Yeah. I think that's true. It wasn't for me. It was really limiting because I was so scared of being wrong and like getting it wrong. And then as I matured, I thought like, well, I want a I want a wilder relationship with God. I don't want to like turn in assignments as like that's my way to earn heaven. Yeah, yeah. Like I want and I think part of that was foster care. It's so impossible. Like it's such an impossible task that it just felt like everything that I thought I believed was like totally insufficient about God and about grace. Like I wanted better Jesus. I like, I wanted a better Jesus than the Jesus I had created for myself. And it always feels like 
my, the things I'm writing and my relationship with God are like so tied up because it's my primary motivator. And like, I'm always writing about the things that I'm struggling with in my spiritual life. And I can't untangle them. I guess I can sometimes like when I'm writing marketing copy or when I'm writing, you know, I just wrote a pilot for some guys who wanted a pilot. They had this idea and I was like, yeah, I can write your idea. And I just wrote their idea. But like when it's my own stuff, it's like, so I so don't know what to say about God or like even why I believe or just like feeling shame about believing the way I believe or feeling like, well, feeling cultural shame, like Christians are so whatever, annoying or (laughs) like feeling like, well, you know, just being ashamed of myself that like, I'm not a better, I don't know. It's all so, and I don't mean that in like a Catholic guilt way. You have different columns. You have like Catholic guilt and then writerly guilt. I just, yes, I do. But I also don't feel Catholic guilt in the sense that like people who are raised really Catholic feel it because I wasn't raised really Catholic. You yeah. Feel I, it? I, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't even believe in God anymore, but like I, it's like in my, it's in, it's in my lymph nodes. I mean, it's, it's fundamental, you know? Yeah. It's, I mean, I think, I think it, it, there's a, there's a version of it that is comparable to like my Jewish friends, I think who, most of whom are, are atheists have something that is like similar to, to it. It's a different flavor of guilt and it's a different, different set of uh, sexual hangups, but it's, it's, it's in there, whether you have any of the beliefs or not, you know? So you, that's okay. I hadn't, I hadn't realized like, you're not, you're not a cradle Catholic really. I am, but like, I wasn't confirmed until I was in college. So I sort of went through like this high school phase of like, uh, being evangelical or going to, I went to like a hippie dippy school. So I went to like a Buddhist, whatever, whatever. Yeah. I was just dabbling and like having a nice time. And then I think other people may define having a nice time in college or you know, dabbling in slightly different <laughs> ways. Yeah. Hanging well, out with the Buddhist, I, living, hanging out with the nuns, yeah. you know, serving the, the I also soup had yeah. a terminal illness. So like yeah. I didn't, I couldn't party. Like I couldn't yeah. go out. I like had to go home and go to bed. So it was like, I had to get it out <laughs> somehow. Get, but... your, get your kicks in church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By like, I don't know, exploring different religions or whatever. And then I came back to the faith because I met friars who were serving in a really poor area in Newark. And then I started volunteering with them and like serving the poor. And then that, just really affected me because it felt like, right. Like if Catholicism is true, then this is where we should find Catholics. And then it was sort of like, well, is this me or not? And it was, you know, I just was so drawn. I was so drawn to it that it was like, it was almost like, well, it's not really a question for me to answer or not answer. I can't stop coming back. Like I'm still here. And I still feel that way. I'm 31. I guess that was a long time ago now, but I'm still, I'm still drawn in. I don't even know. I think that's why I believe in the Holy Spirit because 
when I hear other people talk about the Holy Spirit, like Pope or <laughs> whoever, St. Augustine or whatever, like that's, it's like that irresistible draw that like, and, and I don't know why all people don't have it. Because for me, it was so immediate, but I know that that's not everybody's experience. And then that makes me wonder like, well, if I was God, I would just give everybody this feeling of like, everybody needs to go to church or whatever, like needs to be like drunk. But I know that that's not how it is for everybody. It's like, well, why does the Holy Spirit give the gift of faith to some and not to others? I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. I don't have an answer to any of that, but it, the end result is like, I'm so Catholic. You no, almost it, like you almost did an RCIA thing as a. I did do RCIA. Oh, okay. To, to, <laughs> yeah. to do my, to do my um, confirmation. But then I was confirmed. I was confirmed as a college sophomore, like with the high school sophomore class at my uh, parish near my college. Okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, so you were the, yeah, yeah you, you probably was, weren't towering over them, but you were, you were towering over them intellectually. <laughs> I was, I was the only one like excited to be there. That's right. right. Yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah. You, you were the only one there of her, of her own free will. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally was. I totally was. And my parents were there. They were like, Oh, that's nice. You're getting confirmed. Like we'll come, but like they weren't. Yeah. It was not something they were making. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, they were like, Oh, we're happy that you found this thing. And I was like, you raised me in this thing. <laughs> I don't know. That makes my parents sound silly, but um, yeah, no, no. Yeah. I also can can relate to a not like lackadaisical approach to spirituality, religion, but a a sort of a an amused, bewildered acquiescence as a parent. You know, with like because it's it's just so exhausting to try to manage everything else that. Uh, you know, when my, my daughter was like praying to Aphrodite in preschool, it's like, all right. And you, so being the incredibly wholesome, cheerful, kind, generous, patient, uh, Catholic that you are naturally the, the work of art that you wanted to discuss was, uh, succession, (laughs) (laughs) foul, bitter, mean spirited and like profane show on television. (laughs) Uh, it's like it has like a a harder, colder heart than like Veep uh, because it's not <laughs> it's not even like I high comedy. Veep is Veep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, uh, yeah. and it clearly like owes a debt to Armando Iannucci. You know, like the 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 dialogue in Succession feels very much like there were some some tips stole like they they're stealing some tricks from David Mamet and also from Iannucci is what I I would, yeah. I would say. Yes, refresh my memory. Oh, Iannucci is. Uh, did Veep, and then he also did um, it, uh, in the loop, uh, and okay. um, the the thick of it, which is t- terrific. It's a an, um, oh, um, oh and then the, and then the more recent, he did a standalone movie called The Death of Stalin, which is fucking fantastic. It's that really sounds like good. an Orion movie. Is he a history buff? Oh yes, he will like. Well, he's like a, he's like, like a middle aged white man, so now he has to be. It's like uh, contractually, he's <laughs> well, ab- he's obliged to become a history buff. Yes, he's loves documentaries, and I don't know the last time you and Orion caught up, but he has a journalism degree now, and he's working as a journalist. That's that sounds right to me. Yeah, that tracks yeah. right. So yeah, yeah, he's yeah. just got that big old brain, and he just like loves 
documentaries. It's like how he unwinds is like, what was he watching a documentary on that? I was like, how can you live our life and like not turn on a sitcom at the end of the <laughs> But he he was watching well, something depressing. But then I love succession. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I would say I I, I think as a play, playwright, I, I would say Death of Solomon is like is very, very funny. It's a oh, it's okay. not yeah, it's not like a heavy, it's certainly not a documentary and it's not heavy. It's very fast and funny and it's very a lot of black humor. But yeah. no, so so tell me. I just rewatched the pilot uh, today. Boy, it was fully formed from the beginning. Like they were, it's so so crisp, so well set. Like the acting, yeah. They had pilots are often kind of wobbly. You know, they're often kind of figuring out what they're doing. This was on point from beginning to yeah. end. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's pitch perfect. And the scene at the end with the little boy and the um, the Patek Philippe watch. Yeah. Oh, oh, were they? Were they? Were they? Uh, he, he, gives, like, he offers him a million dollars to, dollars to yeah, get yeah. a home run. Yeah, and then it's just the whole way that unfolds, and I, I think about that scene like once a week. I just think <laughs> it's like the creepiest, most perfect scene. And as well, like we'll su- summarize it quickly for people who might not have seen okay, it. Okay, so there's the family. The billionaire family is playing baseball at their private baseball diamond. And they just have like a groundskeeper and his family, I guess, like on retainer at the field. And they, Roman, who's the middle son, played by Culkin, Kieran Culkin, says to the little boy who's like 10, I'll give you $1 million if you get a home run. And he writes out a check for a million dollars. And the little kid does hit a really good shot. And he gets almost all the way around the bases and then Roman tags him out. At the, no, no, no like, I think it's, I think Tom, Tom tags him out. Oh but, yeah, yeah. Tom yeah. tags him out. But like everybody else, all the adults are sort of like in on it, like fumbling the ball and like throwing it late as like a, the normal yeah. appropriate adult right. thing to do. Yeah, let yeah, the yeah. kids succeed except yeah. Tom and Roman. Well, and Tom, well, cause Tom's, seriously. Tom's not a member of the family. So he's, he's, he's overcompensating. Oh yeah. You know? He's trying to right. show up. He, he's trying to be good. Yeah, that's right. He is. He's trying to be like good at baseball, yeah. which is so embarrassing. And he's <laughs> the one who gave the watch that then the little kid gets as a sort of a consolation prize. But then but also as hush, find money. Out at, as hush money, but then you find out at the end, isn't it right that he switched the watches? So you see the Patek Leap is on Roman's wrist on Logan's wrist and then Logan's watch is in the little boy's box. I didn't pick up that detail, but that rings perfectly true. Right. And then he signed in, he signs an NDA and like, but like the thing is that it's like, okay, that's all very creepy that they like (laughs) offer this money and then like, didn't follow through. And then Roman has to like real dick move where he like rips up the check and he's like, here's a quarter of a million like a piece of the paper but then like one of the last shots is just like the kid and his family in their apartment and like nothing's changed and they're so happy like somebody's making dinner like the little kid is like playing his game and like their lives are unchanged like they're a happy family spending time together and then you go back to the Roy's who are just like so (laughs) miserable and like not a happy family by definition and 
It's just that contrast was so striking. And then we never see that family again. Given that basically the show focuses on this, this family and this group of people who are at best petty backstabbing megalomaniacs and like, and at worst, just like stone cold psychopaths. What, why, why is this a show you like a lot? I'm curious. Okay. First of all, because that family, the groundskeepers family, it, the theme comes back in season two with no real person involved. The no real person involved is when they're being accused of like their cruises and like dancers were getting like uh, sexually assaulted on their cruise ships and stuff. And it all comes out in the, and like one of the documents that gets leaked is that inside the Royco ship department, cruise department, they, the term for it is no real person involved. And that means that like, you know, the assault was committed against like an immigrant or a prostitute or like somebody that the Roy's don't consider a, a real person. person. Yeah. Not a, yeah. not a, so not a like, player, not a contender. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not somebody who can um, like advance their position. And it's like that keeps happening. Like they keep killing off the sympathetic people in their life. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like nobody right. in that family can make or keep a friend. I think the thing I love about it, obviously beyond the great writing and uh, et cetera, everything's perfect, but is that I, it touches a sort of like dimension to human nature. Like why are people evil? And and it, it answers that question in such a human way that it just, I have found myself when I'm reading the news or hearing about something or something, like I think back to the Roy's about like, why are people evil? Like the person behind this, like, I don't know if you saw, like we were all supposed to like boycott Kellogg's because Kellogg's like wasn't paying their factory workers. Yeah. yeah. And- it's a uh, Amy's is the new one that they're, they've been doing a bad job. No, I know. Amy's- I know they've been, it's it's not i don't think it's as egregious as kellogg's but they've had some bad stuff come out lately about their working conditions yeah and it just like i thought back to logan roy when i was reading all those articles about like the poor kellogg's workers and um like all the spin that like kellogg's was putting on it anyway i think i love the show so much it feels like a dimension of human behavior that I can't wrap my head around. I I really, it's so far outside my wheelhouse in terms of anything I would write or anybody I would meet or it's so, it's so dark and twisted. And yet even within that you find people fighting for virtue like people fighting for doing the right thing or like keeping their promises or like that even there not not much though i mean they're they're like shades of that but often often even like fighting for virtue is a play is it's like like you remember uh patrick to his claim about cordelia was that I don't what was his claim? His claim is that Regan and Goneril say, Oh, we love you. You know, nothing could compare with our love. 
he his claim is that Cordelia Patrick Stewart was a, a professor of, uh, of theater history drama that that yeah, was his yeah. CS subject yeah like yeah Shakespeare um, and whatever but he his claim was that Cordelia was making a like a Roy family move by saying well I love you as a daughter should that basically like her obviously not demonstrative understatement was meant to reveal their flattery for what it was so that like basically he says like she's making right. a move that that misfires and like it doesn't land right and then she gets fucked right yeah that's fair she's like at the in the pilot uh shiv calls that a, a first position she's like right. i was just taking a first position why yeah. do you have to go have a heart attack no exactly exactly i mean that's exactly it yeah but it's like the self-centeredness of like oh he must have had the brain aneurysm because of what i said (laughs) (laughs) like all but all of them have that reaction right i I think you're right it's like even when like at the end of the second season when kendall makes his big and the you i know you haven't seen the third season but like the that continues as a big thing people that they're concerned with it where he has this crusade to bring light and truth to the company and it's just sort of like a me too moment where he's kind of revealing this big bad secret but that's self-serving right he's like he gains from that so that it's it's hard to there are certainly less sympathetic characters at times and their moments of humanity and softness but they're almost always punished Right, yes. it's almost always a moment of like, like even that for in that pilot when Kendall says, you know, his father says to him, "Well, you, I know you have this important business meeting, but it's also my birthday, so it's a matter of priorities." And so he, he decides to come to the birthday party to show this: my priorities are I care about you, father, and and that's the wrong choice. You, know, you yeah. fucked up. Like you are not going to get promoted because you chose your family over the business. That's the wrong. Yeah, you know. and they have that same moment in the end of season two when. Like that's the first real moment you see Logan be proud of Kendall is when yeah. he's watching Kendall's press conference. Right. He's so proud of his son for like destroying the fan. Like, cause he, it's the move. For he making a move. He's it's the most yeah. alpha move he could make. And so that's what it's like. He's basically, his thought seems to be, that's what I would do. It does. I mean, it, yeah. it, there's certainly like the, a big part of the, the, because I think you're right. That part of what is really, mesmerizing about the show is the the juxtaposition of huge damage and petty motivation like the choices that cause a lot of harm but they are motivated by little bratty jealousies and and personal tiffs and things and it does seem like part of that has to do with the the collision between the the founding generation, like the big, tough, badass motherfucker from Scotland who started this company or who, who built it up and was, yeah. sort of had, didn't have much to begin with. And then his spoiled effete children, which is why I think like, I know there were a lot of comparisons to like the Trump family. And it seems to me that that's a little bit misplaced that like, it's not like Don Jr. And Ivanka, like the, though they don't, they wouldn't even measure up. They're like, this is really, it's the story of like Donald Trump's father and Donald Trump and his siblings, because it's that, yeah. it's that you do have at least the, cause Donald Trump himself is a, is a phony baloney playboy. Like he, he didn't right. be the, the tough founding, you know, ruthless killer guy. He, that was his dad who was apparently a huge asshole to him and who he always 
you know, wanted love from. So it does seem like that's part of the, that's part of what makes it as dynamic as it, it if it were, if it were one generation later, it would be mere soap opera, right? There, because there wouldn't, yeah. there wouldn't be quite as much bloodshed, I think. Yeah. And it wouldn't be as, after it leaves Logan's hands, like it's not really somebody's life work. Right. In the same way, except maybe Kendall's because Kendall's been preparing his whole life to take over the company and he's like constantly thwarted. But he has, um, but he, but he, he's stepping into, even if it's a shadow, he, you know, even if it's an enormous shadow, he's still standing in his father's shadow. His father wasn't standing in, like his father wasn't trying to become yeah. anybody. He's still trying to become yes. his father. Yes. Uh, and we haven't even talked about Shiv, who's like also trying yeah, to take maybe. over the, co- like she's always scheming to take over the company. Like when she tells Tom, like you get in there and hustle, like you, <laughs> you hustle. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, she is. She is like a, I mean, sending a yeah. but I mean, it does seem yeah. to be like, there's something like she's clearly the smartest, but maybe, maybe just by virtue of being a woman, like having that, which does seem to count against her. It like, she, she can't quite, I don't know if it's, it's, she lacks the, total total ruthlessness but yeah it doesn't it doesn't quite ever none of them can quite measure up there is yeah, like there's a yeah, farcical quality to it they're like too soft or they're like too hard except con <laughs> Poor who's just a who's just a buffoon i mean who's just a he's fool just yeah he has no edge who has zero what do you make i'm curious what do you make of his wife, the call girl turned failed playwright? Uh, she's, she's, I mean, that's pathetic. a painful character. <laughs> she's painful. She clearly, it's like you see her make the choice to stay with Khan because he offers to fund her play. Which that's- is, which, which, I mean, is, I see, I winced at that because. Yeah, I am right. Like I, that's, that feels a little closer to home than some of these other, right? Like I understand that that's a kind of a a bargain with the devil that feels harder to laugh at. And, and, but the thought I had watching that moment was, well, no, don't do that. Not because like, you know, theoretically, oh, were you giving your life to your art? And is that the most important thing to you? Well, my thought was like, well, no, but you're bad. Like, don't, don't do that. Cause it's not worth it. Cause yeah. you, you suck, but that's, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I, you know, she clearly, she's not having that thought or maybe she is on some level. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's pretty painful watching her realize that she's bad at this, that her play is bad and got terrible reviews and that's painful. It's also painful because like you're watching somebody get the shot that you know, it seems like all of us want, like some billionaire is just going to fund your holy shit. Yeah. Broadway play. But like, you just see in so many ways, like that's not the dream. That's actually not the dream because like she didn't, I don't want to be like, she didn't get there on merit. Well, so so this is, this is one place where, yeah, I, I have like, I do think there may be a couple of little spots where you see, the writers tip their hands somewhat mm. because, and that's one of them. Cause I wonder like, well, what if she did a play and it were not, 
I mean, in, in the in the show, it's like it's it's a ludicrous failure. It's an absolute catastrophe, and everyone agrees it's objectively disgustingly bad. So much so that like she sees the headline and instantly throws her iPad <laughs> into the ocean, or throws her husband's iPad into the ocean. Yeah, so, that is funny. I, I wonder, like, okay, f- from the perspective of the writers' room, though, that's a, that that leaves them feeling pretty comfortable, right? Because they're all successful Uh-oh. writers, right? And most of them, most of them are probably playwrights as well, right? Because they're writing dialogue for TV. So what if they did? What if she did that, and it were like, oh, it was kind of a success. You know, like mm. yeah, like yeah, you can do another one. Like, what if it were a little closer to like, oh, that feels. I think now suddenly we're talking about some people we know. Suddenly we're talking about some people who might be in the room. You know, I think like I, I wonder about that. The the other one is I think, you know, I so I was thinking about the the um, old. Uh, use of the term gentle, like the Shakespearean use of the term, mm. um, like when you talk about gentility or um, the, the contrast would be between the gentle and the mean. The, mm-hmm. gen- the gentles were those who were so uh, wealthy and comfortable that they could afford to be nice. Mm. They could afford to be generous. They could afford to have manners and to be mm-hmm. patient and to not fight tooth and nail over every scrap because they had a lot of scraps and then meanness literally means smallness. And it comes from both having a small life and not having many resources and also physically being small because you didn't get to eat as much. And, right. and so that the mean, you know, and, and in Shakespeare, there are, there's a line even in Henry V uh, where he says, the prince says, or the King says, um, is every man of us, you know, be he ne'er so vile. We meaning like, even the vilest among you. And there's a total intersection between poverty and like moral and characterological puniness. And he says, basically like all of you today are going to fight like you're rich, which is <laughs> like today. We don't, it's not the way we think of it now, but there's a, there is a, there's both because there was a sense that like nobility and especially royalty had a divine and, you know, uh, stamp of approval. There was also a sense that by virtue of being noble, you, A, like you were better fed, better in better health. B, you, uh, you had, you were specifically trained to fight because that was your major contribution to the society was that you mustered the army and you, you know, you fought in the battles, but C, you, um, you had the good grooming. You were raised right. You knew where to put the fork in the knife and you knew to say, yes, ma'am. And yes, sir. And you knew sort of you, you knew how to behave and somebody who was raised constantly fighting for his next meal would be rude, would be easier, you know, would be quicker to steal something, would be quicker to kind of fight for every scrap and to, to be foul and nasty in conversation. I wonder with the Roy's because they all talk like, like mammoth characters or like, uh, did you ever read the Michael Lewis book, Liar's Poker? No. Great, great book. I mean, just terrific, like entertaining read. It's a, it's a, it's a memoir about working on Wall Street in the 1980s. Um, oh, fun. And they are, and just like the dialogue, just like the character. I mean, in fact, like the, a lot of his movie, his books have been adapted into movies. It's, I, I don't know why no one has adapted that one, or if, or if so, maybe someone did and it flopped. But it's, it, it's like such juicy character and dialogue stuff in there. Um, and they all just talk like absolute fucking monsters all the time mm. um, just the foulest most abusive terms and that's how all of the Roy's talk that's how all of the characters yeah. on the show talk and it makes me wonder like again what if the pay for play 
prostitute slash trophy wife slash playwright were like a moderately successful playwright and got some good reviews and then gave some, gave a Ted talk. And like, suddenly it would feel, we would, you know, like it feels a little more uncomfortable for us. And I wonder also about Mm. like, well, part of being rich and being raised with privilege is clearly like there are the Trumps in the world who are just, who have nothing to recommend them, who have none of the virtues of wealth (laughs) and all of the deficiencies, but like, Shakespearean logic doesn't hold. Like we don't believe that rich people are actually gentler or better or, you know, like that doesn't work. Right. That doesn't, but there is something to like the comfort and the, the luxury of being generous, right? The luxury of being in a position to be soft and patient and gentle and to, to speak right. nicely. And so I wonder if like, again, I wouldn't change the show, but if the Roy's spoke in more, if instead of making fun of every like wokeism that comes up on the show, instead of like constantly making weird incest jokes with each other and constantly abusing each other, if they spoke right. in the patois of like the liberal med- media elite, which is how most rich people speak, I think we would all be a little more uncomfortable. Yeah. Like I, I think their yeah. awfulness, it makes it a little easier to, to keep them at arm's length. Yep. And right. And that's a a conscious choice in so many ways, like that they run ATN, which is Fox News and all all of that. I think where they really address those specific things of like, okay, the Roy's are billionaires and Tom is seen as this like social climber, blah, blah, blah. But Tom is also a rich kid. Like he was raised by a lawyer in <laughs> yeah. the yeah. Twin City. You know, his mom's, I think his parents are both lawyers. So like he definitely yeah. grew up rich and privileged. Yeah, he was but, he was merely upper middle class. Yeah. Right, exactly. But then like he's the one who teaches Greg how to be rich. And it's sort of that thing of like, you know, people who learn a second language, like know the grammar rules of the second language better than their native language because they had to learn it, you know, and Greg and Tom are like that for me because Greg's in that same boat where it's like, okay, his uncle's rich, but then his uncle is constantly playing games with his money. So even though when that guy dies, they're going to inherit a quarter of a billion dollars, they don't have any money in the first season. Right. Greg is working a minimum wage job that he gets fired from and then he has no options and no money. So that billionaire guy didn't pass on any of the comforts to his kids, but his kids like spent their lives knowing that there's this like money cloud looming in their future, but they have to live, you know, (laughs) like, yeah the mouth like pretty much or they just like it kind of seems at the beginning like oh well greg really never learned skills to survive because he's assuming the guy's gonna die and get the money any day now yeah but then he does like he chooses to stay with the roys my guess is because like they taught him a skill like they taught him a uh they made him somebody and that's 
worth more to him, even though he doesn't like who they made him. Like, he doesn't like being the ATN executive. He doesn't like the things that the Roys do, but he likes being somebody and being part of something. And like, that's really what it seems to me, like that's what cousin Greg is after from the Roys, like not their money specifically, even though the money is great. Like he wants to be part of something. Yeah, I think it is more about status for him. I mean, I I do again, like I think there there are distortions that make for better characters than probably that like deviate a little bit from reality in that like it's actually quite, I was surprising in watching the pilot again. It's it, it's it's really early on that he makes his first sort of major move where he says like his 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 grandfather owns a lot of stock and hates Logan, the CEO, his you know brother, and Greg realizing that he's not going to be able to get a direct favor from Logan in just like in the limousine driving to the baseball game. He says, "Hey, uh, wouldn't it be nice if my grandfather weren't on the board anymore? Oh yeah. What if I could get him to give up that chair? Like he's all re- like early, early on, he makes like a big <laughs> piece of shit move, and it does seem like." My guess is that cousin Greg would like, he needs to be a little bit desperate in the beginning in order to motivate him to join this, this circle of vipers. But I think probably like all of them would be a little bit softer and a little bit more pathetic than they are. Like they're all a little more vicious and aggressive than I think they probably would be in real life in which again, you need the show to be motive. You need plot. Right. And I think that yeah. it would be a lot more, it would be a lot more like a, a an extremely well financed version of the Real Housewives. I mean, honestly, like watching the Real Housewives with Joanna, like I'm always blown away by how fucking rich they all are that they just, they right. just sort of waltz through. And again, like that's a show where like, oh, I'm going to go be in Chicago for a while. I'm going to go be the, the play Chicago on Broadway because I'm this right. rich guy's wife. Uh, and yes. like, oh, yeah, I did a little acting back in the day. So no, I mean, I think, I think that that's a that's a world with no stakes where all of the where like all of the motives are just for play and for self-indulgence and this feels like part of what makes it gripping is that the stakes are bigger even if the motivations are still as small but yeah i, I think they're I, I think they are better i mean probably probably, probably the truth it was true for shakespeare's characters as well like the the real nobles and royals were not as smart or as dynamic as he made them out to be uh surely yeah naturally it makes me think of what you said at the top of like kendall is always trying to do the right thing but he's trying to do it for himself and not you know out of any sort of desire to do the right thing but yeah he wants to be cool or authentic or he wants to yeah find himself or something like he wants to be like a twitter hero of doing the right thing yeah or whatever but he he actually does i think the most generous thing in the show when he buys greg an apartment like greg doesn't have anywhere to live and it's like, well, they must not be paying Greg very much or Greg is paying off his mom's debts or, you know, whatever yeah. is going on behind the scenes. Greg doesn't have any money or any place to live. And he's like, and Logan buys him an apartment. 
Yeah. And yeah. it's like, well, or sorry, Kendall. And it's like, well, Kendall must have been noticing that Greg doesn't have anywhere to live. And then he was like, oh, me and my money can solve that problem. I can get, I'm going to get my cousin a place to live. And it's like, I don't know what you think. That to me ranks as like one of the reasons I still like Kendall Roy. And like, I'm still rooting for him. So I'm like, well, that guy's underneath there. Unless you're about to tell me how that move was also self-serving. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's still self-serving. I think, I mean, I think you're right. Like there are there are comparatively nice moments, comparatively generous moments. There, there are moments in which like one of them likes another of them better, or like they 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 have a temporary right. alliance where they like you help me out here, so I'll help you out there. But but again, that's like that's a that's the term is you know, that's a real person involved, right? He's a member of the family. Right. So oh, he's yeah. your help. Like he, that's somebody who a hundred percent will be able to do you a favor later. Like you've, yeah. you just got him on your show. He didn't do, I mean, I think about like the person who got evicted from that apartment or like or not even that apartment because that's probably a too nice apartment, you know, but like the, right, right. Uh, you know, the low income housing that was bulldozed to be replaced by a giant building that then he got put up in because his cousin had a whim. Uh, right. So I think, yeah, yeah like fair. it's, the stakes of that, like the stakes of the good, I think like it's a smart thing for the show. It has to be a really difficult thing for the show to figure out, like how to make, how to keep tweaking the characters just enough that you don't totally repulse the audience. Like you need right. us to keep liking them enough. But I do think, I mean, when I, when I watch it, I tend to think that we're all, it's a, you know, uh, the, the, the Baudelaire, you know, hypocrite reader, my, my uh, reflection, my brother. Um, right. Like, these are, we are not the Roy's, but, but we are also, you know, except for you who seem to be like the one, like really fundamentally good person I know, maybe um, like we're no, we, like, we, we are all also doing favors and kissing up and kicking down. And, you know, we are, we are doing things in order to look good or in order to convince ourselves that we're authentic or we're cool or we're worthy of praise. But, uh, fundamentally there's still somewhere somewhere far away there are a bunch of people suffering that we don't give a shit about i think that's true i also think like for me you know i always battled a big bad evil but it was a disease which like nobody is behind and there's no like malicious intent it's like okay whatever it's a disease but like nobody's the brain of the disease doing this to me on purpose yeah. And now uh, being involved in the foster system of New York state, all of a sudden I'm like in the midst, I'm like Bambi in the woods. Like, well, why aren't people being nice? Like, why aren't people going the extra mile for the kids? Or like, why are, why am I getting an email a week late in the bare minimum? And you didn't answer my question. My kid's been waiting on this thing for, and it's sort of like, it's, it's that different type of apathy of like, I don't have any control. I don't run the system. I'm just one person. So like, whatever, I'm going to do the bare minimum because I can't make any kind of changes anyway. And we all know the system's broken. And so, you know, I'm just going to keep my hands clean kind of and just finding people who like are apathetic and I'm like why would you work 
in the foster care system, if like you don't care, like you don't care or you don't want to change it or you like don't want to help yeah. kids. And it feels like, well, everybody wants to help kids. Everybody in their mind thinks they're there to help kids. But, <laughs> but then like just sort of that abdication of personal responsibility, like, oh, well, I couldn't answer that. You know, I'm overwhelmed. We're understaffed. Half the staff is out with COVID, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like, like that sort of like underling evil of like, well, I'm not in control and the people who are in control are the evil ones. That's the, they, that's uh, the banality of evil, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like that's what I'm facing. And this is not about like anybody in particular involved in our case because. Right. But that's exactly real, it. Right. It's not, it's not one exactly person's it. malicious action. It's a it's lot of not, people's yeah. negligence. Yep. And then everybody, including myself, will be like, oh, it's the system. I'm overwhelmed. How could anybody yeah. possibly keep up with the system? And there's no way to get around the fact that I am a part of the system. I'm not like some benevolent actor changing the system either. Like I'm also just right. trying to get what I need for my kids or for myself or for right. whatever. It's like all of a sudden, like, like that meanness that you're talking about, like that fighting for scraps. It's like, yeah. I think in a sense, like me personally being like sort of like a genteel character and then having this awakening of like, oh, I'm actually, if I'm not willing to like fight or be mean or get scraps, like actually my kids aren't going to get what they need. And like, that's a yeah. real reason to like change or like you know i've never called somebody on the phone and like cussed them out but like right. now i have yeah you know yeah, yeah, but yeah, also yeah. like does that is that just like making me harder or is that making me a better person or was i like totally living in a fantasy land where everybody was nice because i'm nice and you're nice and like that doesn't work here right well, there, but again, there has in to the be... land of like yeah. Everybody's suffering. There's like literal actual suffering. Like every child in foster care is yeah. uh, currently undergoing trauma just because foster right. care is a trauma and the system is a trauma and having a judge decide your life is a trauma. So like the stakes could not be higher because we're talking about children and their lives. And if you're thinking about Christianity, which like everybody in the foster care system is a Christian, you know, it's sure. like, oh, I'm a Christian, I, whatever, that's not true. But like, it's a common theme. Sure. And, and then you just think like, well, why, like, why are we not doing the things we need to get things done? And just participating in a system that is this messy, yeah. like you are also guilty. There's no way to not be guilty anyway it, it right like 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 there's some person in the foster care system who when from like that person's perspective you are the like cold faceless desk with the nameplate that like certain things have to get past and they're like oh fuck kathleen jones like they're like like you're like, you're the why is she yeah. calling again she's being overly dramatic she's like the foster parent from hell because she like thinks her things are the most important and she's like constantly calling and she's being like a Karen, you know, like, where's my, I need to speak to your supervisor. But right, like, right, right. Yeah. yeah I yeah. do. I do need to speak. To your <laughs> <supervisor>. <laughs> you know, I know. Like 
I don't like I am, you know, I'm trying to get over myself because it's like, well, I want everybody to like me, but that is not a winning attitude. If we're talking about getting services for my kids and everything I can't, I'm not actually their parent, even though I am emotionally, whatever they live in my house, I feed them. I take care of them. I wake up when they have nightmares, but I can't make any decisions for them. I need to rely on the agency and system and people who work nine to five to get those decisions. It's, and so it's like, well, I think about that constantly. Like I know I'm making this particular person's life hell, but also I do need to like report them and speak to this other, but then I'm the person reporting the person who's like just doing their job and totally innocent, but like, it doesn't matter. Like my kid needs something. I'm going to get it. Yeah. But, right. I, I but think, that's a new yeah. attitude for, for me. <laughs> right. No, right. I mean, but I think that's, that was my, my, when I, and again, like having, having kids the way we did, it's like so much slower and so much more, there's so much more cartilage on the joint than what you're experiencing. But like my, my, my impression when I, when we had Josie and I'd like take her out in the world was that I, I found that I was, I was much more selfless, but I was also much less considerate. That like yes. I was selfless insofar as I was giving things over to her, but like fuck all y'all, like get out of my way. I'm taking <laughs> care of my kid, right? Like I could be much more. I could be much more like pay, like oh look, you go first and let me help you. And then like I could be much more understanding about the world outside when it was just me walking around. But when I've got my kid with me, like no, I like you're gonna wait. I'm gonna push through. I need to you know I, because it's I I'm not. It's not about me. It's about her. And so I'll really be an asshole to you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That is it. I wonder if back to the Roy's for one minute. Yeah. Yeah. Please. It's like Logan raising kids. Like did Logan raise those kids? No, no, no. So like sort of the unseen force in that show is whoever con mom is. Right. Like we've never met her. And then the British lady who they all a hundred percent talk about as like such a nasty lady. And then you think like, well, okay. So it's like the absence of Logan's love and care and attention that like they're all fighting for. And the thing that Logan loves is his company. So the thing that they're fighting for is his company. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, right. right. Yeah. 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 The, the game is what is my dad really, value and how can I chase that? Yeah. I think that's, I think that's I true for a lot of, I mean, I think it's true for like most of the boys. I like for me and like most of the guys I knew growing up, I think like there's some element of that. Uh, in his case, it, the, the absence of love is so severe and the devotion to winning and getting rich and, you know, is so extreme that it, it becomes really monstrous. But I think, I think some of that is true for most for most of the guys I know, I think, I think it's a little different for girls growing up, but there's some, I don't yeah. know, you know, is it certainly there's like, you, you have like girls with like daddy complexes where that that's a whole, you know, like right. you have an absent father or something, but for you, I mean, you're, well, you're a go-getter, you're an overachiever, you're mm-hmm. somebody who, who like opts to do more things, you know? So yeah. th- did that have anything to do with a with like, I mean, was that, was like God, the, your, 
your to get to was God your Logan Roy to get really uh, yeah, kind of Freudian about him? <laughs> yeah, but kind of. But my own dad wasn't. My own dad is like undyingly supportive. Yeah, he was like, "Oh, you want to be a playwright? That's great. That sounds fun." <laughs> but I think I don't know if he was that way with my older brothers because mm. I was I, the so baby. You're, you're, the youngest I'm the of youngest of three. Three, okay. And I have two older brothers and the only girl, and I had cystic fibrosis. So, like, right. you know, the story my brothers tell is like I was the baby and I got everything I wanted. And like, of sure. course, because yeah. if you have a, a sick kid, right. I, I'm that way with my kids. I'm like, yeah. oh my God, you're sick. Why don't you just stay on the couch all day and yeah. watch Coco Melon and then like you're yeah. sick, whatever. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, you and you spoil the youngest partly because you're just fucking exhausted. You're exhausted and they're yeah. still nice to you. And the yeah. older ones start getting an attitude <laughs> and it's like, oh, yeah. the baby still wants a hug from me. Right. So yeah, I'm yeah, going to spoil yeah. this child. And sure, yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't know where it came from for me, like being an overachiever, but I feel like it, it was more of like an inner pressure. I just like developed it inside that like always having to like be good. It's like, well, if I'm not good, then like I'm going to get in trouble. But I don't even know. Like my parents never got me in trouble. Like they weren't that type yeah, of, yeah. they were not strict. They were very like loving. So I think I just like invented it. I just yeah. you're <laughs> just know. you're just neurotic. You just yeah, I just, like yeah. wanted my own inner inner Logan Roy. It's funny because like with foster care, you know, I don't have biological children. So like I'm coming to parenting from a way that's like okay how do you parent kids who aren't your kids right or who you just met last week and all of a sudden it's like right. oh i gotta parent you now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's like you know i read a lot of like child brain development books and all that stuff and like the thing that they talk about that always stuck with me was like secure attachments like right. kids who have secure attachments who feel secure are safer taking risks because they have a secure, they know that well, like def secure, define so for people who might not have heard that term, what that means. What a secure, secure attachment is formed as a baby with a primary caretaker. And in the secure attachment, the child learns that they are secure, that their needs are going to be consistently met, that they're going to receive a consistent, steady, like appropriate flow of love and affection and kisses with boo-boos and you know, if I cry, they're going to pick me up. Or if I'm hungry, they're going to feed me. And sort of like the secure attachment is formed when the adult builds like a bond of trust of like, I'm meeting your needs. You can trust me to meet your needs. Yeah. You're secure and you're loved. And it's like that bubble of secure attachment is how children's brains develop in a healthy way. And if that's interrupted or the child has an insecure attachment, like maybe, you know, sometimes I get food when I'm hungry, but sometimes I don't, or right, yeah, sometimes yeah. I get love when I'm sad, but sometimes I get hit. And it's like an insecure attachment, like the, the brain can't develop properly. And like the brain flourishes with insecure attachments for like a young, early developing brain. I'm not a doctor. Yeah. You should ask your wife who sure. is a doctor. 
yeah. And, and just to, <laughs> but, and just because the, the words blended together there a little bit, just to clarify, you're saying oh. the brain flourishes within secure attachments. Yeah, yeah. insecure attachments. Not with like insecure how... attachments. Right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The brain requires a secure attachment in order to grow and flourish in sort of those high level brain areas like learning and risk taking and learning new skills. And now I want to ask Joanne, be like, am I getting this right? Did I remember it correctly from my dream? Yeah, it's funny because Joanna's the... And she'll, I mean, she, she's read, uh, definitely knows a lot of the stuff, but I have learned a lot more about the difference between psychiatry and psychology since being Mm. married to her. And psychiatry is a lot less philosophical than I had assumed. And it has a lot more to do with like troubleshooting and like solving problems in Mm. a, in a relatively straightforward way. And this like partly because I think, you know, if you bring in a psychiatrist, it's sort of like when you bring in a plumber, he might say like, well, it would have been better if you had built the house differently, but the house is this way. And so what I can do is I can bring in these tools and I can address this problem in your pipes right here. It's like the the psychiatrist has less, is less interested in like, well, how should a child be raised than in like, well, when someone comes in, you know, like, with these symptoms and doing these things, what can I do to intervene? Yeah. Yeah. And that's a lot of like foster care training too, is like, this is the child you have. So how do you parent the child you have? And, and they try to teach you in training, like here's an ideal brain child's brain developing in a healthy, loved environment so that you sort of know like where your child missed the boat. Right. And sort of like you can address the unmet need in your particular kid, sort of having an understanding. Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. it all comes back to basically secure attachments. That that's what people need to grow. And I've been thinking about that as I'm watching this because obviously none of the children have <laughs> yeah. Yeah. secure, healthy attachments. Yeah. And it's almost like they're taking risks like, okay, like one sort of mantra from foster care training was, you know, you're going to see the behavior until you address the unmet need, like sort of reframing bad behavior or acting out as a need that a child has that needs to be addressed. So like how are, instead of, instead of, you know, giving, getting the kid in trouble for having bad behavior? How can you like address their need for attention or love or um, whatever? Like what's, what's the need that's driving the behavior and treating the need instead of always just treating the behavior because then you're not addressing the root cause. Okay. So like, and I'm not an expert. I just took a 40 hour zoom training. So <laughs> well, and, and, and you spent a year with three foster kids, but yeah. Yeah. And I tried to parent these kids and I would like literally like read a blog or follow up on something from training, like go home sure. and try it on my kids. So, like, <laughs> see if it works. Cause like, that's, I mean, that's most parents. I never, right. I know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Like, like, or it's like somebody, I heard this, I heard this on a podcast or I saw this on a Snapple cap and I, you know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, okay, Dr. Becky said on Instagram that I need to do this. So I'm going to try try it. So thinking about the Roy kids, none of them have secure attachments. 
And like they have a range of concerning behaviors that were I to be writing one of my reports to the case planners or sort of like giving my opinion to the judge about Mm -hmm. the case or whatever, I would have a range of concerns that would need to be addressed with support services, which is how it's packaged. (laughs) What would you, you, who, yeah, who needs a nap? Who would need, who would, who would you provide some applesauce for? Who would you? I do think legitimately Roman Roy, like, has some like real unmet psychological needs. Oh, you, you think maybe with with this bizarre sexual relationship with yeah. he like he both like can't have sex, but he also like has this weird. He can only style. have like deviant sex. Yeah, like, he yeah. wants to have like healthy sex, healthy normal sex with his girlfriend, and he can't. Yeah, he can only have like weird deviant sex, non-sex with Jerry. Right. Who's like this mother figure? It's like I don't know. Right. Okay, I'm not gonna like a, like a mean mother figure, like an abusive. Like yeah. she says mean yes. things to him. Yeah, and that's what he likes. Yeah, you yeah, know, my he's like the only child that we see like get abused. You yeah, know, like we see Logan hit him, and it's like, yeah. oh, this is pretty rehearsed. Like how we behave yeah. after the hit, and it's like, okay, that's a if Logan if if <laughs> Logan Roy lost his children to the system, like little Roman Roy would be like seven years old, like telling his foster parent, like, Oh, when I get in trouble, daddy hits me. And then, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. He he's, but instead of that, he's like trying to run a major corporation, (laughs) you know, it's like they never got those interventions. Not that anything is good. This is what I mean about like, I'm participating in the system, but like rich kids don't get, they don't sort of get, seen as like kids who need attention and services and have needs because it's like, well, how does, how does Roman Roy have needs? He has everything in the world, but like they all have unaddressed trauma that they just play out over and over in the same sick loop of like Kendall subverts his dad and tries to take his dad down and then comes back in the fold. And then Kendall subverts his dad and like, yeah. So, so what, if I hear what you're saying is the people we really need to feel sorry for are rich white men. Is that correct? Is that, is that your conclusion? Yeah. Yeah. That's my thesis. That seems, that seems right. uh-huh. I do, I do think that like, because uh, Roman is, I find him kind of pathetically sympathetic often. Like I, I sort of, my heart yes. goes out partly because I, li- I really like Kieran Culkin, the actor. Yeah. Uh, yes. But I think that in the, I think in the kind of a, the cosmic succession universe i think he is actually donald trump oh i think he grows up to be it's sort of like like uh anakin skywalker like he you could see like oh he yeah he has a little bit of a tender heart he really wants love from his father he's a total sexual like he's like a incel weird no he's like a vol cell you know weirdo sexually yeah. like he maybe he's never had sex with anybody in a normal way but he sort yeah. of has a demand for it and like it's about power uh and he's sort of a buffoon in a business world but he's going to inherit so much money that he's going to look like a success either way um, yeah so no i think he grows up to become donald trump so you think he's the most dangerous not necessarily i mean i think like donald trump may have had siblings who had things turned out differently they could have been more dangerous like i think i think like mm. shiv maybe is like a Coke brother, you know, 
Yeah. And they're probably yeah. more dangerous, right? They're just not as grotesque. Do- Donald Trump's dangerous, but I think I think he's less dangerous than a lot of other ultra wealthy people. Because I think he's just, re- he's more, it's more of an awful, a- an awful spectacle. Uh, okay, so but he doesn't have an this. agenda, right? He's, his only agenda is positive attention. Right. Yeah. He it's just, have just like, I want the people in this room to think I'm cool. Yeah. Donald Trump does not behave like somebody who grew up with security. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like one of the things that's so difficult and frustrating about raising your own biological kids is, is how much you recognize, like how much mm. their deficiencies are my deficiencies. <laughs> yeah. And I, and it's like, it, it, so it, it would be, it's a whole different thing. And it, it is like, even when I have little interactions with like their, their little peers, it is, it's always sort of jarring to like, like, Oh, I have no idea who you are. <laughs> like, like I don't yeah. have an x-ray straight to your soul. So I can't like, all right, this is interesting. <laughs> yeah. That is, sure. I think the thing that's, that I'll never un- know how to fix. And like, why would I even use that language to start the sentence? But like the thing that is just like the unsolvable problem is like generally moms who lose their kids to the foster care system. Yeah, Jesus. It's like, it's not like it's rich moms. It's not like it's Upper West Side. Right. And so you think like, well, you already have a woman who has not a lot and then the recipe for helping her get better is I'm going to take your kids away, which is like your will to live. And then it's like, okay, now you don't have your kids. And the reason that you were probably keeping things together and now on your own, you need to become a better person than you were before. Right. Which like most people have a really hard time doing, like even making relatively minor improvements. Like, like a new year's I still resolution can't work out. I've tried to like have a steady <laughs> exercise routine for years. I can't do it. And if yeah. somebody was like, I'm going to take your kids and then you better be working out six days a week or you're never going to get them back, which is like probably how the system feels. It's like right. making ch- change as a person is so right. difficult. And like, I, there's gotta be other, you know, one day when I'm out of this and I can sort of read scholarly articles about foster care without a panic attack. Like I want to see what scholars have said about a just way to help families. I think probably it's, it's, I think probably it's like having large, I mean, like people do in most of the world, like having large extended families and villages live together. Yeah, that's probably it. That's probably the answer is like grandma steps in and like auntie so-and-so and Okay, but that's the Roy family. Like they are a large extended you, village. Yeah, that, I think the, I think there were a lot of servants raising, you know, changing those diapers. But they feel it feels like they're always together, but like they're never providing each other like the support they would need to flourish as good. Yeah, but they're they're together. They're together. I think I actually think they're together the way characters are together in a play where you like you contrive to have them be in a room. Right. Yeah, but like the actual, like, that's another distortion of drama is like the actual Roy's would, would see each other once a year. Mm. They would, they would be off. Like they would be, all of them would be con. Like they would all be doing different. They, they wouldn't constantly be in the room fighting it out. That just, that makes for better TV. Right. That's fair. 
it's yeah, like, terrific I, to talk to you. And um, thank you for giving me so much time. This is, this has been like a fun, weird rambling. Yeah. And you know, apologies if I went on, but I no, no, no. long stretches between talking to adults. I don't know about you. <laughs> I, but I know the like, feeling. Yeah. I can only talk about Fortnite so long before I forget who I am. So do, we'll do, and, really uh, do we'll, when, when you are able, uh, do more of your podcast and, uh, and, you know, interview people. Cause that's, that's a great excuse I found for talking to adults. See, that just sounded like a lot of work, but now I got a schedule and now I got a calendar, but it's a little bit maybe of I'll try it. Maybe but I'll try it. It's just funny remember, because I am yeah. way more social than you. And I'm like, Oh God, other people. And you're like reaching out. But this is because this is a, this is like my dream social hour is like, let's sit down <laughs> one-on-one and have a topic of conversation and stay focused. And we're not going to get too personal. We're really mostly going to talk about ideas and yeah. no, I mean, and like, like everybody comes prepared with like co- topic homework. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, like I've prepared yeah. for our hangout. Exactly. That's <laughs> why like the first, the first few times I like hung out with Joanna with another couple, I remember leaving the like brunch and feeling like we didn't accomplish anything. <laughs> like what, yes. what was that? We just sort of, traded words at each other for it was like pleasant but what was this what, what's the, why the pleasantness uh, is the thing that's it's uh it's still still alien to me that's orion too he was like the the small talk was the whole point right <laughs> i'm baffled by that baffled that was my conversation with kathleen jones you can find her on Twitter at hello Kathleen J, and you can find her on the podcast Writing My Writing Down. I'll have links to all of her stuff on the show notes. Uh, do check out again the at Slee Ricketts account on Twitter if you are so inclined, or you can contact me as always at sleericketts at gmail.com. Uh, thank you all for listening, and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs>